Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 29. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they got in the classroom, what they're currently working on, and their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Valerie May. Valerie is a biology teacher at Woodstock Academy in Woodstock, Connecticut. Uh, Valerie was the 2014 Woodstock Academy Teacher of the Year, the 2015 NABT Outstanding Biology Teacher for the state of Connecticut, and the 2016 Connecticut Science Teacher Association. Excellent in Secondary Science Teaching Award winner. Valerie is a member of NABT BSCS AP Biology Leadership Academy and an HHMI Biointeractive Ambassador and is a regular presenter at NABT and NSTA conferences. As part of her work for HHMI, Valerie spent 10 days during the summer of 2016 in and around the Mozambique Gorongosa National Park, leading a professional development course and learning about the park and its mission. Her teaching goal is to provide a supportive classroom where students struggle with biological concepts and grow as learners. Valerie's essay on the role of struggle in the learning process was published in a Washington Post education blog in 2015. You can follow Valerie on Twitter at Valerie May underscore May. Welcome, Valerie. Hello. How are you doing, Aaron? Good, good. It's nice to see you again. This is like the closest the two of us have ever been together, even though we're exactly. talking over the internet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The first, first time we met. And actually, it's funny, I was going through and I was looking up the things. Uh, we were at that the OBTA uh, winner, uh, award winner thing. That was the year I got my OBTA as well. Oh, really? <laughs> so we didn't know each other back then, but we, no. were, we were in the room together and we're both from New England. So I'm sure right, right. we were on stage within minutes of each other because we're from Probably. the same region but we just yeah. didn't know each other at the time uh, yeah. when I was looking up the year I was like oh yeah because I scrolled by my face and bio <laughs> when I pulled up yours so uh, yeah the first time we ever yeah. talked was in Los Angeles and then uh, obviously you were on the episode uh, just a couple months ago yeah. um, and then we spent like three hours uh, in the Delta Sky Club um, <laughs> waiting for our flights so hanging out for the flights yeah, yeah so this is uh, this is great I'm I'm glad you could join me in the the last few weeks of our uh, our summer vacation um, I go back actually in September this year which is wow which is later wow. you going back in August uh the 23rd is the first PD day and then with students on the 29th okay so you're going back before yeah we're going back um, I'll have well I have a couple of days this week for committee and then a day mm -hmm. next week for mentoring and a day next week for my alternative program and then a couple of PD, PD days the following week. So I'll actually be in school each of the next three weeks leading up to it, but we don't actually get students in classroom until we get back in uh, in September. So. so the classic after Labor Day. Yeah, it's, it's been years, I think, since we've yep. had that. So it's good. So um, I'm going to jump right into it. I, it's weird because I had okay. you on a previous episode, but uh, I didn't go through this uh, this formal part with you. So I'd love to hear, right. how did you become a science teacher? Uh, what got you into the classroom? Well, I, I started out kind of the classic, I like biology, so I'm going to be pre-med uh, kind of route <laughs> at the beginning of college. Um, I remember my advisor asking me, well, why do you, it was actually sports medicine. That was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He said, well, why sports medicine? I said, well, I like biology and I play sports. Kind of seems like it would go together. And then she asked me some questions about like, did I actually know what sports medicine was <laughs> and that kind of thing. And um, being 18, you kind of suddenly realize like, I, I really have no idea what I want to do. Um, so she encouraged me to be her lab assistant for anatomy and physiology. And I said, but I don't know anything about anatomy and physiology. She said, it's fine. I'll tell you what we're doing ahead of time. You can look things over. And it's really all just about asking the students questions to help them review the material that they're looking at. So my first experience with teaching, I was instructed to ask questions to the students. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was less of that I was the expert. It was more just I was the facilitator. Um, which I now realize is like what you're supposed to be doing when you're teaching. Um, <laughs> but I felt a little bit of an imposter at the time. Uh, but I found it was really rewarding to help the students work through um, their frustrations when they felt that the, 
So like histology, there's like all these different tissues that they needed to learn. And, and a lot of the students felt over, overwhelmed by the whole, the whole, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, help them to break it into the parts. I didn't decide to become teaching to become a teacher through that. I still kind of more on the pre-med kind of, um, path. Yeah. Um, but sophomore year, second semester, I did start thinking a little bit about teaching. Um, and I guess I'd been around students that summer. I was a camp health officer at mm -hmm. a camp in Michigan, which I think back on it now, it's like I took an advanced first aid class and now I was responsible for everybody's well-being. Um, but I was around kids all summer and I, I realized that I, I liked being around kids. I liked, I liked teaching them some first aid and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I took an education class and absolutely hated it. <laughs> um, my, my, my love was still the biology was still, um, understanding about like what's happening inside me and what's happening in the world around me. Um, and when the, the college professor said something about a good high school teacher doesn't necessarily have to be an expert in their content area. Um, they just have to stay one chapter ahead of the kids. Ugh. And I just, I left the class fuming and I went into an organic chemistry lab and I continued to fume about how I didn't really need to be there to learn any of this stuff. Cause I just needed to stay one chapter ahead of the students. Um, so I pretty much took high school teaching off the table at that point. <laughs> um, and kind of went more towards. I was no longer, I no longer wanted to be a doctor because dealing with sick kids at camp had <laughs> cured me of that. I realized I uh, couldn't really handle the, um, not necessarily the after effect of the accident, but like thinking about how the accident happened kind of okay. wasn't, yeah. So um, I decided to go to research and um, molecular and cellular biology um, really kind of fascinated me. I think it was because it, stuff I hadn't learned in high school. High school biology was, there's this stuff called DNA, and um, then there's these proteins, and we eat them. And that was about it. That was yeah. the only molecular biology I got in high school. Um, but I was starting to learn more about it in college, and the idea was I'm going to be a PhD in molecular and cellular biology, and I'm going to teach college. So the, the teaching idea was still there, um, but that's where I felt like I could still have the love of biology and do the teaching because this education class had told mm -hmm. me that being a high school science teacher, you really didn't need to worry about content and didn't need to get deep into it, which is a myth, definitely <laughs> a myth. Yeah. Um, so I went to a, a year in grad school at Oregon State University out in Corvallis, Oregon, um, with the intent of getting my PhD and did a year of that and decided what I really needed to be doing was high school teaching. <laughs> and um, the problem was that there weren't enough high school biology teachers loving their content and really teaching high school kids um, at that age when they are becoming interested in different fields. Um, so I kind of came back around and I got my master's of ed um, through the University of Massachusetts. And um, I've been teaching ever since. Yeah, I, I wonder how much overlap we had because um, that's where I got my master's again. So like the numbers of times that we should have been, you know, we were probably in the right. same room because um, right, right. <laughs> I got my same place where I got my master's. Um, yeah, as you're telling that story, that that idea that, yeah, you don't really need to know the content. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I ever heard it as bluntly stated as that, but I do know that that was a a common thing that you would hear that like, well, you know, they're not really scientists, you know, right. they're, they're high, the high school teachers, they don't, they're not really scientists. And I, I think of all of the science teachers I know who are like, you know, they, they, if they wanted to, that could be the thing they're doing, but right. they're just right. channeling their passion and in science into trying to spark interest in others. Um, and the less you know about the science, the harder it is for you to spark interest because right. you just don't know anything. You can't make those connections. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, in my 22nd year of teaching, I now kind of get what she was trying to say. Like good teaching is good teaching. And it kind of doesn't matter what subject area somebody is in the same basic ideas of how students learn and how good, what good teaching looks like is the same. But, um, 
I still don't agree with that whole content <laughs> issue. I would not make a good English teacher. There's yeah. just no way, no way that would happen. Well, I think when we start, you know, and I remember back when, you know, I started teaching and you take, uh, you know, uh, I took the Safir Research for Better Teaching. Um, and I know there's a lot of similar uh, courses out there, which are sort of generic engagement methods courses, um, and they're content free. And it's mm -hmm. just sort of about the, the, the commonalities that good teachers have. But really, that's only one part of it. The art of teaching is then marrying that with sort of that, that trilogy of the passion for your subject area Absolutely. And a general interest in the kids that you're working with. It's right. those three things. It's the right. It's, right. it's the art of teaching along with, you know, wanting to be in a room with teenagers every day or whatever age group you want. Yes. And a, a love of the science and a, a just a, you know, I, was, I spent a couple of days down on Long Island with uh, with Paul Anderson uh, down doing his, uh, you know, don't kill yeah. the wonder. You right. know? And I think that one of those things about most of the science teachers who I like talking to, they're like super fascinated about things. Like they're still like geeking out over they're like, oh, have you seen this article or did you see this thing about this protein? Like even though yeah. they've been teaching for, you know, 20, 20 plus years, they're still they still get really excited about science mm -hmm. um, and they're still wondering about things. Uh, I think that's I think that's that trilogy that marrying those three things together is what Definitely. really makes the great teachers. Um, or, you know, the ones that I want to be like. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, so one of the things I was realizing as I was pulling together all of my information about you is, uh, you know, we spent that week down in, in Florida and we had the more extended conversation. And we mm -hmm. did not talk about Gorongosa at all right. in our long conversation. And I was like, oh, I would love to know. And I remembered when you went on that trip because I remembered David uh, and Paul talking about you guys going over to Gorongosa yep. at the time. Uh, they did a little name drop for you in horizontal transfer. And I remembered that uh, and, and that I was going through all the stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, that's right. She was one of the people on that trip. So what was that experience of going to Gorongosa like? And, and how did that, you know, how did you bring that back to your students? Like, what was that all about? Yeah, so that was it was a it was a whirlwind. It was um I don't know, it seems like something that big. It's like a year from now, I'm going to go off and do this thing and the time scale of it was was quick. Like the first mention of it was mention of it was I think in the end of middle of February and then it was still, you know, we're going, we're not going, we might go and then July 5th we're headed off to Africa. Mm -hmm. Um and it was, I had heard about Gorongosa through the, um, the biointeractive resources. Um, there's the, the guide, which is a, a short video, um, and with E.O. Wilson and the mm -hmm. young boy who's deciding, you know, what he wants to do with his life. And E.O. Wilson convinces him he's, he needs mm -hmm. to be a biologist, not just a guide, but, and guides are super important. And I saw how important they were in the park. Um, the, the wisdom on the ground, but this particular kid um, really needed to be a biologist um, so he could bring the science back and, and help with the restoration of the park. Um, and it was one of those things you watch it and every time the tears come to the <laughs> eyes and, and you get choked up about it and I watch it with my kids and we talk about how like how brave the parents were to let him go off to university and, and that kind of thing. And, um, but never really having the concept in my head that I would be there and I, I would walk around the park and I would, I would, um, and, and see all these things that we were seeing in the video. Um, so it was, it was a long plane ride to get there. I was just talking mm -hmm. to somebody the other day, 17 hours on a plane without landing is, is a long ways to go. Um, and proceeding to get into smaller and smaller planes over the course of two days. Um, but when we, um, finally, we're in that small plane and we're we're flying over Mozambique at a level where you can see the houses and you can see the termite mounds and you can see the the geometric distribution and all these things that I had learned about through lectures and through mm -hmm. activities and things like that. I'm not seeing it with my own eyes, um, not on the ground yet, but still seeing it. And as we came into the park, the, the pilot kind of mumbles he's going to give us a special special treat and he comes down really really low and we fly over the floodplain 
and there's we can see the warthogs and we can see the water buck and we can see the baboons kind of all over the place and it's like wow i i'm in mozambique i'm in africa wow <laughs> um so we landed and 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 kind of got to see the Chitango is the town is the Chitango is the camp in in the park um and it, i kind of think of it i always describe it as three parts um there's the tourist part of the pie um and that's where there's a restaurant and there's a um the guiding services for the tourists and there's um I can't remember, like cabana type of mm-hmm. places for people to stay. Um, and then there's the this ranger portion of it where the pretty you know, the law enforcement, the people that are protecting everybody who goes out and and all that type of thing. And then there's the third, which is is the science part. Um, and that really is what the park is all about. There's the science that's going on there. There's the tourists that are coming in that are basically supporting the efforts of the restoration of the the park, but also the area around the human developmental development area. And then there's the those really really important rangers who are there to pick, protect the wildlife and protect the people that are are there to to see and learn more about about the area. Um, so we spent the first couple of days just planning for the the workshop that we were going to do. Um, and it was uh, kind of an understanding by design mm-hmm. set of two days where we were working with the researchers who were teaching um, the, the courses, the workshop courses for the Mozambican students um, who were going to be the next generation of conservation biologists. Um, so it was like we were teaching the people who were going to be teaching the people mm-hmm. who were going to be doing um, the conservation and um, so we had planning days and then we had the workshop and we hadn't really gotten outside the fence yet. And, um, and the workshop was, was fantastic. It, was, it went really well and um, it was well received. And then it was over and it was our chance to get outside the fence. I, I think I even said at one point, like, I wanna go see Africa. I've been inside this fence. Like I've been in the zoo. I want to, like, I've been the animal inside the zoo. I want to get out. I want to go see um, what's around. And um, the first day we were free, we went to um, Vila Gorongosa, which is the biggest town in in the area. Um, And we're driving along the road and there's giant potholes. And this is like a main highway. And we're looking at the scenery. It's beautiful. It's just, and I got this overwhelming feel like I'm in Africa. This is, this is what Africa looks like. Um, and we came into the city and we went to a high school. And I think one of the, like that day probably had the most impact on me of, of the whole time. Uh, the game drives were amazing. Seeing the wildlife in their natural habitat, seeing lions and elephants and zebras and, and all that was was fantastic and amazing and I'll never forget it. Um, but being in that town and seeing students in, there's just no resources. Being in a school, there's nothing. There's there's no books, there's no smart boards. There's no, mm. I mean, there were computers but the computers aren't connected to internet. Um, so the students are learning word processing skills and things like that. Um, but the teachers and the students were happy to be there and saw that school as an important aspect of their future and of their life. Um, I also noticed they gave us some numbers of statistics of how many girls versus how many boys were there. Um, and it was probably two thirds boys and one third girls. And it kind of brought to life in front of me something that I'd always talked to my students about, about how, um, the importance of education of girls is important for bringing countries um, further along in their economic development. And um, it was always one of those things you hear about and you kind of like, oh, but people are doing that. It's getting better. Mm. And then you see it and it's like, so so where are the girls? Why aren't they in school? Um, and, and we knew why. I mean, they were 
mothers, they were taking care of their siblings. It, um, but it was just, there it was, I saw it. Um, a little bit later, um, we got a chance to see kind of a, a middle school age group um, and they performed a song for us and they did this great skit on anti-poaching. Um, <laughs> I didn't understand a word of the skit, but knew exactly what the skit was about. And it was, it was pretty good. Um, and basically the wives saying, stop, stop doing that. You're going to get in trouble. Um, so, and in that it was like equal girls and boys and it was the girls being the leaders. And I just started thinking about what happens to flip that. So we have 12 and 13 year old girls being leaders, but they're not necessarily then being the leaders when they're 14, 15, 16, year, 16 years old. Um, so it got kind of emotional that day. And, um, you know, thinking like what has to happen to, and at first I was like, protect these girls. And and it's it's questions that aren't gonna be answered right away. But now that I found out it's, it's things that they're trying to address through the economic development of the buffer zone in the park. Um, so girls clubs and keeping girls in school and giving them incentives to stay in school and educating families about the importance of that. And um, it was just, it was seeing something that was important to me and then knowing that there's people that are, it's important to people on the ground and it's being worked on. Um, it was pretty amazing. Uh, so I think that's the biggest thing that stuck with me too is just girls in the United States have so many opportunities, so many opportunities. Um, and they need to embrace that and cherish that. I mean, there's definitely not equity all mm. the time. Um, but yeah, that's my soapbox. I guess. <laughs> well, it's, it's also going to vary a little bit. Um, you know, where you are in the country and exactly, the degree. Exactly. I mean, you know, I think that it's, there's always a, a, a sliding scale of, of you know, um, historical inequality. I mean, you could just right. basically look at that. You just go back a generation and you say, you know, go back a generation or two and you look at the educational levels of men versus women and we see that evening out. But now when you look at, you know, CEO differences, you go, all right, well, the, we've made some gains even in the United States exactly. in terms of graduation rates and, and STEM careers. But in terms of who's leading now at that next level, we still don't, you know, there's still a gap in the United States. I think it was, you know, just amplified for you to see it in a different scope, a different yeah. part of that yeah. continuum. Um, yeah. Definitely understand that. So so now you, you, you've you gone, you've had this, um, you know, this, this wonderful experience. You come back and I know you worked on resources for HHMI and you've done mm -hmm. presentations on that. Um, how does that experience, you know, manifest itself in front of you, you know, when you've got your kids in front of you in school? Like, how did you bring that back? Uh -huh. Um. So... It's only been one year. Yeah. It, it seems like it's been, it, it seems like it happened five years ago. I, I everyone's wanted to stop myself. It's like, it was just last summer that, that I, that I was there. Um, so I, I just, I, big thing is I share with my students the experience that I had and going someplace and just having an open mind and, and learning about a culture besides my own. Um, but the importance of of people making a conscious effort to care about the natural world um, and bring it back to back to a, a state of of stability, and that we as humans have done a lot of stuff because it makes our lives easier. And in without thinking about the consequences to to the natural world around us, and it's going to take money and time to to restore. And restoring doesn't mean necessarily making everything back to exactly the way it was before, but to look at what's going to create a kind of a balanced natural system. And that doing that doesn't mean that we then can't. 
uh, I don't quite like can't have businesses and can't have economic development and can't have um, as we hear so often very much it's either conservation or business. Well, no, when we conserve things, there's just, there's so many opportunities out there and it's a great, this, the park is a great example of people thinking of all aspects of the problem and trying to come up with a solution that while it's benefiting the natural world, it's also benefiting the people that live there as well. Yeah, they're using um, conservation to drive economic development. Exactly, exactly. Um, so it doesn't have to be conservation prevents economic development, which we often hear sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, I, it's an amazing opportunity. And the funny thing is that you're describing this and you're describing your travels. You do have this sort of degree of like wonder it sounds like you're somebody who like never goes anywhere that you just sit like <laughs> which i know is like the exact opposite like as i said you know like every time i travel you're there so um yeah. you, you travel a lot and you travel a lot more than uh, most people i know uh, and we were, were talking about like where you're going this summer and i and i yeah. happen to travel a fair amount this past summer and you seem to be going more different places so it was really funny to me like the way you're describing this travel like uh you know i'm traveling these new places like you're always traveling places and you still had this otherworldly experience um yeah. even for somebody who's an experienced traveler I would say it was definitely, I had pushed myself outside of a comfort zone of travel. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> I think that's also just, I just love to travel. I, I love to see new places and, and change and see the differences between what I live every day and, and that type of thing. So I, I think it's an important aspect of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to shift, shift us gears and I'm going to bring us away from world traveling and I'm going to bring you to the reality of, you know, this is going to be a week after this comes out, but two weeks from yeah. now, you're going to be in your room. You're going to have kids in front of you. I've been thinking a lot about this the last few weeks for myself. Um, I feel like this summer, more than any other summer, I've been hearing people say, I'm not going to spend the first day going over the syllabus. Mm -hmm. like, there's been like, I don't know if it's just the silo that I've gotten myself into, but I feel like in a lot of different places, I've been hearing that sentiment going on and it's yeah. created a little, you know, uncertainty for me. What am I going to do? So I'm, I'm, I have you now here to, to tell me, you know, what are you going to do on that first day and that maybe first week, you know, set the tone mm -hmm. for your year for your kids. How do you, how do you get them started? Um, well, uh, so one thing with this year is uh, my son is going to be in my class this year. Yeah. So that has actually put um, a different layer. Every time I think about what I'm going to do in my classroom, it's like I live with this age group now. I mean, I've taught this age group for 22 years, but or 21 years is 22. Yeah. But I now know them at a level that's so different than than in the past. Um so I think of like, what would my son be interested in doing? What would get him into um, the mode of, of learning all of this, this biology and, and all that type of thing? Um, so I decided, I'm, I bought a, what is it called? Breakout EDU. Oh, yeah. So that's what we're going to do on the first day. Um, and I, I, I did a lot of research and at first I was going to, buy all the pieces individually and save a bunch of money. And then I just decided <laughs> I'm, I'm buying the, the pre-made kit with a whole bunch of pre-made games. And then I'll learn from that. And um, I just see it as a really good way on the first day to show the kids that they're, they have a job in the classroom. They're not passive. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not going to just get a bunch of stuff from me. They actually have to go and seek out and information and figure things out and work together in a collaborative, a collaborative process, um, and that they might not be successful. So I, I'm, I'm anticipating out of the three classes that do it, maybe two out of the three will be able to actually solve the, solve the puzzles to get the box open, or they might surprise me, and all of them are able to get it open. And but talking to them about the point where it's. It's not a point of actually opening the box. It's the process of getting there, um, and how they work together as a as a as a team. Um, and really focusing on how science is 
done. Therefore, that's how we know what we know. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I scored the AP exam, did the AP reading this year. And I don't know if that completely has changed how I'm going to approach this year, but it definitely had some influence on it. Um, I'm pretty sure every kid had a teacher who was delivering them the content that they needed to do well on those essays, but it wasn't necessarily translating through on the day of the exam. Mm. So, um, I mean, I've always done, tried to put formative assessments into things, but students don't, and no one learns just from hearing things. We, we learn from doing things. Um, so, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's funny, like, it's, 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 it's so happy. It's so good for me to listen to, to like, to watch you a little struggle through this and have this degree of uncertainty because, um, yeah, my kids, like my kids crushed the AP exam last year. Like I had, you know, yeah, I had one of my best years ever. I had a lot of kids who I had had twice. I had a really, I just had a really strong, strong group. Um, and the, but the, the sneaking suspicion I have is that, I think that in spite of some of the things I do, like I have certain structures that are set up for AP and we, uh, I partner with, with, uh, uh, with Brian Dempsey, who's a, a phenomenal teacher. And mm -hmm. he has these like grand ideas of things that we've been working on. And we do a lot of work with model organisms. Um, and we have, we do a lot of work on where the students design labs. And I, I have set out this lab notebook system where the kids do a lot of baseline labs and then do some research and then do a lot of follow-up labs. And we've yeah. really worked and I basically any lab that didn't doesn't fit into that ethos for us, I just don't we don't do like mm -hmm. I just cut things. So if I can't make it work in that system, no matter how much I like the lab or how cool right. the lab is, if it can't be something that the kids can elaborate on, like we just don't do it. Right. Um, and so I and I and so things that I really wanted to do, I had to make a way for the kids to be able to design their own components of them mm -hmm. uh, in order to keep it. And so we do a lot of that during the year. And I think that's why my kids have been doing really well. I mean, they're also a yeah. second year yeah. bio course. Right. So they do get a lot of content delivery. But yeah. I, I do wonder if I could do a better job at setting it up so that when the kids start with me um, in honors bio, the first year biology course, I let them do more science. Mm -hmm. And then they'll be further down the line on the doing science side when they get to AP. I, I still wonder if I spent a lot more time telling them things that ultimately are unimportant, that, you know, they'll just look it up. Um, right. <laughs> they'll either exactly. they'll either do science that involves that stuff. And so they'll learn it because that's how you learn things is that you work with that material. Right. Or it's not really that important. And we spend a lot of time talking about things that yeah, are kind of cool and kind of interesting, but they don't have the impact if they're not actively engaged. Um, right. So, yeah. Breakout EDU is one of my lists. I've been watching what all the other people around the country are talking about and doing. You know, Bob Kuhn's got his uh, his fast plants, you know, his light and dark fast plants that he's been doing. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I did this thing where I, I got some Daphnia and killed them all earlier this summer. I had this idea that I was going to show them some phenomena with Daphnia. And I killed, mm -hmm. then I killed all the Daphnia. So that didn't, <laughs> that didn't work. Uh, so I've got, I got a few different things I'm thinking about. Breakout, breakout EDU is on my list. So yeah. uh. it's so hard because there's, there's just this time, like there's a, there's a limited amount of time and constantly thinking about, okay, this is really cool. And I think it's going to have a lot of impact, but is it worth the time? Yeah. Is it, is it, is it worth it? Is there something else that, Ah, it just, I wish that I didn't have, like, I, I joke with my students and say, wouldn't it be great if we just had a year of just bio, mm. like all day, every day, and you didn't have any other classes. And I could try to put some other stuff in there. So, you know, you could learn some, some social studies and some math, but it would just be like, we just have a year together. Um, and they all like, yeah, that would be great. And I don't know if they're just saying that to say that. <laughs> Probably about like a third of them would think it'd be great. A third yeah, of them would like, be like, like, oh my god, that's the worst thing ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, I feel like I spend so much time in my planning process thinking about how are these ten things 
going to fit into the available amount of time and what do I have to cut out yeah. um, without without decreasing the the quality of the experience um, so well and the other thing that's been you know that I've been saying a lot over the last you know I feel like a lot of the last couple of years is you know we we did not learn high school science by doing like we just did right. it we said <laughs> yeah. and we I didn't learn college science for the most part by doing it wasn't until you know the end of junior senior year when you got those really hard labs and and that's what for the most part it was traditional content delivery and then we started mm -hmm. teaching and we taught yeah. for 10 years where the expectation was you stood and you told kids things um and, I had an overhead projector with yep. printed out overheads that I revealed a line at a time yeah <laughs> that was my first two years yeah, I, I have very, and then you got to transition it into PowerPoint and then yeah, you did the same yeah. thing, but with PowerPoint. <laughs> so I, I did the same thing. And, and so now what we're doing is we've come to these conclusions. We've done all these, the, you know, we, the research is now out. The research was out a long time ago, but right. I now enough data is out to say what's there, but we we're we're building the model. Like mm -hmm. we're creating the model for how we're supposed to do this. We didn't go through the system. So right. I think the the dilemma comes about that we have to sort of just struggle through this like uncertainty of, yeah, I'm going to cut something, but is this thing that I'm cutting important to learning? Because I learned it. Right. <laughs> is this a, a crucial fact that by not knowing this fact, I'm not going to be able to make these two connections later on? Mm -hmm. Or if I take this fact out, will I still be able to make those like? there's a lot of that uncertainty that's part of what we're trying to figure out. And so right, right. Um, I think, we'll, you know, we're going to get there, but it, I do understand the the hesitancy about that cutting and, and making the decision. Um, so it's, it's exciting. Um, right. But I think it's a, I think it's interesting to think that you're still thinking about all of those, those skills of collaboration and problem solving and the uncertainty and you may not get an answer, which are also sciencey <laughs> <laughs> things to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I have the added dilemma that I, and, you know, I teach honors bio. There are four honors bio teachers and there oh, are yeah. eight sections and we try to be collaborative and we try to have the same learning objectives and do things more or less the same. So there's not radical differences. Yeah. So that you're like, oh, well, I got this teacher or I got that teacher. Right, right. And it's 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 good and bad. And there's a tension to it. The good thing is that by working with these other teachers, I've tried all these different things that I would have never done right. before. I've learned so much about teaching from these other people, uh, but it's sometimes glacial to make changes um, <laughs> when you want to make something a little bit more of a radical shakeup. When you're, you know, a solo artist, you just do it. Um, right. And when you're, yeah, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that teaches the honor, honors bio, so I can decide. Yeah. Five minutes before class starts, that nope, we're doing it this way. Yeah. Whereas I like to, if I'm going to do something different, I like to get to a consensus of saying, well, you know, I want to try this way of getting there and at mm -hmm. least communicate that idea. We have agreed upon learning objectives. We agree upon it. But um, there's also a lot of trust built up because, you know, right. three of us have worked together for, for you know, this will be year 18 um, that we've been working, you know, not necessarily all as a unit for 18 years, but we've known each other for that long and we've worked together for a really long time. So mm -hmm. there is a degree of trust. Um, but the other component, and it's, I, I'm the same way when somebody um, like I work with, uh, in addition to Brian, I work with this other guy, Fred, and he's got these great ideas and he's always playing these really clever like review games and doing all these cute formative assessment things. And when he walks in, he goes like, yeah, I want to try this thing. I'm like, well, well no, stop. Tell me, I want to know what the thing you're doing is because right. I'm not sold on what I'm walking into my classroom on. And if what you're yeah. doing is better, I would like yeah. to learn it. Yeah. And yeah. so there is a, a little bit of an onus, I think, on myself to be a good collaborator to not just come up with it sort of on the fly, but to to shape it. And I, I know that after, you know, more than 20 years in the classroom, you know, I can go in and just wing it sometimes yeah. and pull something together um, using my experience and, and knowledge and the things in my head. But my students get a service if I've thought it out a little bit more, but also my colleagues get a lot more out of it doing right. it that way. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah I, I just spent last week working... I was at a PD. I was a PD, PD participant. It was it was quite exciting yeah. for a whole week. Um, <laughs> I thought you were on vacation last week. <laughs> no, last week I was I was at uh, EastCon oh. and we were doing NGSS phenomenon based curriculum writing, and um, I got to experience from a participant side 
kind of a modified conceptual flow um, that I have put people through in the past. Um, and just the idea of, of developing your storyline. Yeah. And um, I think that's the key is like, we want to try all these different things. We want to put in all these different, you know, formative assessments and we want to try different learning strategies and we want to have different learning activities, but we need to make sure what our storyline is. Yeah. And, and when we know that storyline of concepts that we want our students to understand at the end of the course, it gives you that foundation that it, it the anchor to, to do the rest of it. Yeah. And, um, it's not just a bunch of, of fun activities that students are doing and feeling engaged. It, it actually has a purpose and a meaning that's going somewhere. And, and, uh, I thought that was a really useful time kind of really thinking through, we, we picked evolution as the topic. Um, and, that, and even after, you know, a long time of teaching, that was still hard to, to kind of think about what, what's the key important thing that they need to know so they can move on to the next piece of um, the puzzle. And, and how do I want them to get that understanding other than me telling it to them? Yeah, I spent my entire summer with, uh, as they say, the, the the learner hat or the student hat on. Mm. As uh, as I don't know, some people, yeah. some ladies in a room were telling me in Florida back in June. Right, right, uh, right. <laughs> but I did, I, I did that. Uh, the, the you know the NABT uh, workshop with you guys, but I also did uh, a workshop, a neuroscience workshop at MIT, and I also did a Pogel workshop, mm-hmm. and I did the thing with uh, Paul Anderson, right. and in every one of those experiences. I was the student participant sort of in that phenomenon based or looking at models or looking, you know, like it was all Mm -hmm. in that, that idea. And, um, I sort of got two really interesting things out of it. Um, and it's going to be curious because I'm, the thing I'm doing at school is I'll be looking at, um, we're looking at how we're going to do some professional development this year. I'm on a committee that's looking at our sort of professional development moving forward. We're also looking at a schedule change. So those two things are linked and Mm. it's sort of looking at assessment, instruction and workload and how do those shape, especially if we change schedule and how do we support, you know, the faculty who've been basically teaching, we've been in the same schedule the whole time I've been there. So for, this is my year 18 and we've had the same schedule for 18 years. So if you're a veteran teacher who's been teaching in the system and now you're going to go to a system where your classes are longer, but you may not meet every day, which is all of the different schedules we're looking at. I don't know if they've made a decision. Somebody's probably made a decision, but whatever the ways that they've looked at it, they're looking at shifting it out and changing the times so that you're having some longer periods and you don't necessarily meet every day and students have fewer transitions during the day. That's ultimately Mm -hmm. the goal for for our, our our student population. Right. And when they look at that, um, you know, we as teachers need to think about how we're structuring our classes. And as I said to my colleagues, the biggest impact, you know, like we could say, oh, well, you know, we could still get through. I'm like, we're going to lose 20% of the nights we normally assign homework. Yep. <laughs> so what is our homework? What's the point of our homework? What are we asking kids to do? And how do we need to change that? And so I right. spent a lot of my summer looking at that and rethinking about how my homework should look and and doing a lot of work along that line. But I think there's so much that you get. And when I looked at the adults in the rooms that I was in all summer long, um, a lot of the adults were really, really bad at being uncomfortable. Um, yes. <laughs> with <laughs> I, uncertainty. Including myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, and I, I've been there too. I've done that. I spent so much time doing it this summer that I, w- I basically just got to the point where, you know, I walk into a workshop and it's like, yep, I don't know what's going on. Uh, it's fine. I'm going to look stupid here. I'm going to make mistakes, but it doesn't really matter. Um, right. And, and I'm, I've, I've got myself in a very comfortable place in terms of that. And I think that's, it's good for me to, to, it's very freeing, I'd say, uh, when you teach that way. Um, but I now know that if I'm going to work with colleagues, th- I have to respect that. I have to respect their feelings. I have to respect sort of where they are in the continuum of learning mm-hmm. and where they are in that that control that you get into as a teacher. I mean, teachers inherently are in control of the room. So, right. like, how do you give up <laughs> control and how do you help people feel like they're in charge and not in control. And I think that's a really hard thing for teachers to do. They feel like, well, if I if I have uncertainty, am I really leading this classroom? And the answer right. is yes, you can both lead 
and have uncertainty. Those are not mutually exclusive ideas. And um, I don't know the answers to that, but I think it's been fun to watch other people and come to some of those realizations. And hopefully I can help translate it so that we have a, a nice transition in our school um, as we as we change what we do. <laughs> yeah. I, I just The homework thing, just to throw in there. Yeah. I have thought a lot about homework too. <laughs> and what I tell my students, we have four by four blocks. So we have four 84 minute, we see them every day for a semester. Mm-hmm. So we don't have those days where we don't see them, but you can only assign so much homework mm-hmm. to a student. Um, and it actually takes a long time to figure out what I'm going to assign them. I said, if I assigned you two hours of homework, it would take me five minutes to decide what that was going to be. But if I'm going to assign you 40 minutes of homework, I have to be really, I have to be thoughtful of what I'm asking you to do. So last year I came up with the saying that to keep reminding students that homework, my homework for my biology class that I'm asking them to do is purposeful Mm -hmm. and essential. Yeah. It's purposeful because I've thought very carefully about what the purpose is of what I'm asking them to use their time outside of class for. And it's essential to their learning process. Um, And I I think I got a little shift in their attitude towards homework too. Less of a compliance issue. They're not just doing it because I told them to, um, but they're doing it because they know that I'm assigning it in their best interest, I guess. Um, Yeah, I've been trying to, that's the big thing I did this summer is I, I went through the homework I assigned and I've only done it for the first third of the year, but it's it's been a lot of work um, to set it out because I want to try to model what I think we should be doing. Um, I went through the first third, third of the year for Honors Bio, and I went through each of the learning objectives that we we set out. And I have this envision that I was going to sort of you know make everything a performance ex- expectation, and I was going to mm-hmm. blend together all of the science practice. And I was like, all right, yeah. I'm just gonna we have the content laid out. And I know the homework content and now I'm making videos for those. And I, but I've tied the homework assignments that they're doing to the learning objectives. Right. And it's like, there is no way. And if a student, I'm going to tell them this, I'm going to tell them repeatedly. If at the end of your homework, you cannot do all of these content objectives. If you don't know what all of these things are, then you need to tell me that my right. homework, my homework missed the mark. Right. Or you're confused about something. Like, I think we're going to have to have a different conversation, but I, I maybe I'm naive, but I think that just assigning something from the textbook or assigning doing this, and me knowing what the learning objectives is, uh, learning objectives are, and I post the, you know, I know them; they're posted over here, and I tell the kid do this homework over here, but I don't tell the kid what the connection is between the two. Right, right. I, I feel like that disconnect helps kids do busy work that's not busy work. Like they mm-hmm. can do it, it, but now if I tell them here's the homework and it's linked to these objectives. Right. I think for a percentage of students, I'm going to narrow that gap and they're going to start to see it as purposeful. Um, exactly. They're now going to teach me all of the things that I'm wrong about. What I just said is <laughs> is wrong. <laughs> and right. I, I know it's wrong, but I don't know how it's wrong. So I'm going to need the teenagers to teach me how that's wrong. But uh, that's good. So I, I'm, I'm excited about seeing what they do with it and how they go mm-hmm. and um and I hope I hope I make it more meaningful. I think I've made it more meaningful. I just don't know how much more meaningful I've made it. I guess that's right. the better way of thinking about it. Right. Um, all right. So as we look forward, uh, what are you looking forward to in these upcoming years? We've got, you know, you and I are a similar place. You've got like, you know, more than a decade left. You got to. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so so what are, what are you what are you looking forward to in the, the near term or, or more long term in the classroom? Um. I, I just, I think about, uh, I'm, I, I'm trying to, to, to formulate how I want to say this, but um, I want to keep thinking and learning about what I do in the classroom. I look back 10 years ago and what I'm doing now is so entirely different hmm. than what I did 10 years ago. And if you told me what I was doing now, if you told me 10 years ago what my teaching would look like now, I'd be like, no, I, <laughs> that's not going to be the case. Um, so it just keep learning about how students learn and keep incorporating that into the classroom. And that sounds really boring in a way. 
Um, N- not to me. You're t- talking to the right uh, kind of. You're, you're talking to the right kind of nerd. That doesn't sound boring at all to me. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's just the continued reflectiveness of it. But then also, over the last three years, I've started doing a lot of delivery of professional development in a number of places, and I think about like that's helping to keep me excited so what i do outside the classroom with other teachers is helping me to keep excited about what i do in the classroom with my own students Mm -hmm. um it's keeping it fresh it's keeping it so that i'm not doing the same thing all the time because if i'm going to do this particular activity with a bunch of teachers in new york city i better have done it with my students in my classroom um so or using this particular strategy or, or or whatever um, so I hope that continues for the, the next coming years is, is being able to have those opportunities outside the classroom that then make my life and my students' life in my classroom, um, more interesting, I guess. Um, and not, and it'll be fun when I retire too. I guess I'm not that kind of teacher who's like, oh, I'm going to dread retirement someday. I'll have nothing to do. I have a whole long list of things I want to do. <laughs> um, but I I have to get a paycheck because, you know, you got to get paid. Um, so I want to continue liking what I do. Um, yeah. So. Well, you sound like, I mean, it's, it's fun and challenging <laughs> work. Mm-hmm. It's not like... You know, um, I think that if you, yeah, when you said that, if you told, you know, told me 10 years ago what I was, you know, what I'd be doing today, um, I don't know that 10 years ago I would understand sort of the, some of the nuance and challenge of the job, even though, you know, it's 10 year, 12 year veteran and I had done a lot of different things. There, nuances of the job of teaching keep revealing themselves to me. Like I keep meeting other teachers and they're doing interesting things and I'm like, huh. Mm. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't yeah, I, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I think ten years I I think ten years ago I probably thought that at this point in my career I'd have it all figured out. <laughs> and that yeah. I would have binders that I just open and take things out and just do the same thing all the time because I had figured it out. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that that's just not possible. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know a lot of people have their binders and they go in their their binders, and I I did that for a while, and I'm not I don't keep everything in a binder anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's I am I'm, I'm too I, it's funny it's like I feel like I'm I'm getting less organized in some ways because of that because mm. you know I could just tell you all of the things that I'm uh, I don't want to do that I did last year. Right. <laughs> that that bi- the binder of things I don't want to do next year is bigger than the binder of things I want to mm. go back to the the, the well I guess. Um, yeah. The more we go into. All right. So before we get to questions and uh, picks of the week, uh, you have uh, what do you like to do um, when you're not teaching? Uh, we already obviously hit travel, but what else do you like to do? Um. Well, I like to exercise. I try to. Um. There was some times there that I was doing some triathlons and things like that. Someday I might get back to that. <laughs> Just needs a little bit more consistency in the training. Kind of hitting that age where the fear of injury is outweighing um, the desire to do crazy things. Um, and you like to bike, so. Yeah, so um, I actually haven't really biked much this summer other than a stationary bike during spin class. So I, I was thinking, like, I, I made a promise to myself that this fall, this fall, there would definitely be some time um to to get out on the road and do some biking yeah it's just if they were smaller and i could pack it into a suitcase (laughs) and take it with me i would just bike everywhere that i i could go so um there was actually one of the bses um teacher leader academies i i rented a, a really nice road bike while i was out there and that was probably one of my best weeks of professional development because I could sit in the professional development and then I could in the evening or in the morning get on a bike and go bike through Garden of the Gods or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, so that was nice. So and just like doing things with my family is is important. Um, hanging out with my son and, and just realizing 
so much how the years where he's going to be around and hanging out with me are dwindling yeah very quickly so um trying to trying to capture some moments when we can have them is is important right now so yeah my uh my oldest starts uh high school yeah just a couple weeks so yeah, <laughs> yeah i very much know the the feeling and uh the, that the, those thoughts where you go off and you do stuff together. Um, we've been doing a, a family beach vacation since my youngest was a brand newborn. Actually, I didn't go on mm -hmm. that one. That was the year. That was the one year out of the 10 that I didn't go. Um, my wife ended up deciding last minute she had, had the baby and we're like, oh, we're not going to go down to this trip. Right. Her parents were going to go down. Her sister was going to go down. And she decided, no, no, she wanted to go down until like last minute she went with the newborn and the four-year-old and they went down there and, mm. and we've gone every year since. And so now, yeah. um, but now it's like we have my two nephews who are 14 and 16. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my sons are 14 and 10. So we, when they started doing this trip, it was a newborn to four-year-olds mm -hmm. and a six-year-old. Wow. <laughs> and now it's a 10-year-old to 14-year-olds and a 16-year-old. And mm -hmm. you go, yeah, the time is you know, we're trying to remember, like, what year did we do that thing? Or did we do right. this? And it's like, you can't even remember. They're all a blur. Right. Um, <laughs> it seems like it was a, just a minute ago, they were, you know, exactly. afra afraid to step in the ocean. Um, yeah. <laughs> and now it's, you know, now you can't pull them out. They're out boogie boarding or they could go on the boardwalk all by themselves. They don't really yeah. need us there anymore. Um, they're, just, they're people now. It's yeah. just... <laughs> <laughs> when did that happen? <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, before we get to picks of the week, do you have any questions for me? Um, well, you kind of mentioned some of the things, but I was going to say, what are you looking forward to for this school year? Yeah, um, I, I got a couple of big things that I'm, I'm excited about. Um, I'm excited about um, the idea of, of formative assessment and how I'm going to use that differently. Um, I feel like Formative assessment is one of those things that I always do fairly informally, um, mm -hmm. but uh, and I have some formal things that I've built in, but I, I've punted a little bit on using formative assessment to guide instruction, um, and I've I've punted on it for two reasons. Um, one, I've structurally set it up so that we cover material in a set amount of time, and I've never created enough space and room to do anything about it. So like, mm -hmm. even if I collected the data, it's like, yeah, we're moving through, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And so I've, I've actually structurally built in some time mm -hmm. to come back to concepts. I've, I've embedded it within the schedule that there is time and space within my schedule to come back and address concepts through formative assessment um, nice. and build some resources that are also associated with. So if students are missing things, I can say, all right, so I noticed some people were struggling on this here's this resource associated with that. So I've, I've been looking at how to start using formative assessment more formally um, in there. And I, I don't want to say that I don't use it in the past, but I've, I think I've, I've structured it in very small pieces and I've been limited on how I've collected the data because I didn't necessarily always want to, um, you know, deal with the, the implications of let's say we do something and it's, it's a real, it's a much bigger struggle than I'm ready for. If right. there was no time, there was no time. It was like, well, you guys have to figure this out. And I don't think that's really fair to the kids, but I think historically that's how I'd always put it together. And I've grown more and more uncomfortable with that over the years. And I've incorporated it more. So this year I've, I've structured it in. So I'm looking forward to using formative assessment and having space to do things. And if we have, you know, they don't need to go it. I have plenty of extra resources <laughs> to, right. to fill that time and space with some yeah. neat ideas. Um, and then the other thing I've, I've mentioned is, uh, you know, thinking about homework, um, in addition to tying the homework to learning objectives, um, I'm adding a degree of choice, um, into the homework where there's multiple pathways to achieve the learning objective. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see what the kids, um, say about that. And these are all real things I'm putting forth in my honors biology classes and not in my AP classes, um, <laughs> because the... The, as I said, I feel like the AP kids are in a really good place um, yeah. in general, and I need to make a lot of changes there, but that's not the, that's not the ringing phone. That, that's not where the fire is to me. Right. The, um, where, I don't kill the wonder in my AP students. Like right. They make it through there despite all of my you know, talking at them in honors bio. Those are the kids who take AP bio. They're still excited about AP bio. Right. Like right. Those kids are still excited. But do we 
kill the wonder in the honors bio kids because we have 200 kids who take honors bio and we have 90 kids who take AP bio. And is that because they just doesn't fit in their schedule or is it the fact that there are kids who are being, you know, subtly being told they're not good at science or mm. subtly being turned off or subtly being told it's too hard for them and they're not, they're not learning how to struggle in a productive way. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's realistic that all 200 would go on and take AP biology. Like that's not what I'm saying, but mm -hmm. I, I feel like the feel I get between the two classes is different. And I would like there to be a little bit more excitement in the honors classes um, across the board and a little bit more okay with the struggle. I don't feel like the younger kids are good with the struggle. And I think that's inherently part of who they are in their age group and, you know, that's what it's like to be 14. You don't yeah. want, you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to be right. uncomfortable. But I also think that we could teach in ways that they would get there faster. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the way I structure the class could help along that line, especially if I'm not the only teacher doing that. And I feel like I have colleagues who are on the same boat. So those are things I'm excited about for this year. Um, and I'm really excited about a schedule change in a couple of years. So um, preparing and getting ready for that change is, is also the in that is is in all of the mix of all of those other things I said. So. Right. All right. All right. So uh, maybe I'm going to do my, my little addenda before I get to picks of the week, my note <laughs> about <laughs> picks of the week. So last on my last episode, I did a pick of the week, uh, which was um, the thing explainer and doing something with thing explainer. And I literally did it saying, I, I, I've known about thing explainer a while and I want to do an assignment with it. And I've come across these things. And then uh, David Kanofsky uh, said, <laughs> uh, listen to the episode. And he's like, didn't you see this thing back on Horizon's transfer? And I was like, no, but clearly I'd heard it. And uh, he shared with me a document uh, that he had made. Um, and so I put in the show notes, um, the episode 45 for uh, horizontal transfer. And this is like the perfect example of like, you hear things, but if you're not ready to use them when you hear them, it doesn't mean that you just can't do anything with them. And that's why I said to David, it's like, I'm sure I heard that. And I'm sure I thought it was a cool idea. And I said, yeah, there's no way I could incorporate that in my classroom. Right. But having heard that a year and a half ago, now I'm in a place where I'm looking for opportunities for students to create things and looking for, to give some, some freedom and, and a little creativity into some assignments. And so back when Paul and David had talked about that all those years ago, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, I couldn't have used it, but mm. it was back there. So I definitely want to give credit where credit is due because the reason it was kicking around in my ideas because I had heard it from them some time ago, uh, mm. but I wanted to put that in before we get to picks a week. All right. So Val, what's your pick of the week? Uh, well, driving in the car the other day, we were listening to NPR and um, it was a rebroadcast of Freakonomics mm -hmm. um, on handwriting and is it really of value anymore? Um, and it was just, it was interesting to hear the the different research that they were presenting and the history behind why we learn certain types of cursive script. And uh, some of it was to make us more moral people. I, I, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that all fit together with how you made your S and morality, but um, so and, and just having also making the connection of having read over 16,000 <laughs> high school students. No, yeah, 1,600, not 16,000. Okay. 1,600 um, high school students handwriting over the course of a week. Um, and it was just, it was doing a lot to make that connection about do we judge students based on their handwriting and therefore... Um, if they have nice handwriting, they must, must be good students and good people and intelligent. And if they don't, then they must be the opposite. And um, and just there's so much that goes into, like, do we actually need to teach handwriting anymore? Um, so, and, and then also thinking about my own son's handwriting and that I actually have to read it and score essays this year. So... <laughs> They were talked back when he was 10 about how I'm going to have to read that handwriting someday. But, um, so we'll see how that all goes. That's, that's interesting. I, I, I feel like I've, I've heard that episode. Um, in I think the it was past. back in 2016 is okay. when it was originally. That's cool. Yeah. The, what you say about the handwriting and, and reading kids writing is, is always very, it's very interesting. Um, I will tell you that 
I, I don't know if I necessarily negatively judge them, but I, when I get the lab notebooks from kids who keep really neat, organized uh, lab notebooks and they have all their sections labeled and they do everything, else, the degree of joy I get mm-hmm. from a, like a well-organized lab notebook is, you know, as I, I don't know if I'm, I, I'm probably on the pendulum the other way when they're ugly but like a pretty lab notebook is so fun to grade (laughs) it's like almost like distracting when you get like a really pretty one um (laughs) i can i can think of myself going through and going wow this looks this is exactly what i wanted them to do (laughs) this looks perfect so uh yeah just like oh thank you yes like this mental thank you out loud yeah (laughs) all right so my pick is um and this is something i use uh with my students when I do ecology, which is how wolves change rivers. Um, and it's all about the reintroduction of the wolf into Yellowstone. And so um, it, it was part of a TED talk. Um, and this is actually, I, I put the link in here uh, from uh, TED Ed. So it actually has some embedded discussion questions in it. And it's a really cool example of how the wolves are a keystone species and how one species uh, removal or addition into an ecosystem has, you know, this this trickle effect on all of the other organisms. And so even though, you know, we often talk, talk about ecology and how we have these cascades um, when it comes to the different trophic levels, this is like the, you know, the, the movement of the water through right. uh, Yellowstone is changed because of this and it really is a nice i just love it because of the biotic abiotic link um, Mm. which i find i sometimes struggle to express how the biotic and abiotic connect to each other i feel like biotic is really easy to connect this eats this and this eats this these two things compete and that stuff's really easy but how biotic and abiotic shift each other uh, particularly when you're talking about how animals have an impact on the abiotic factors of an ecosystem this is a, a it's a really nice example um and also talks about unintended consequences. There, mm-hmm. Nobody reintroduced the wolf to say, you know what we want? We want the rivers to change. <laughs> right. um, that was not part of the goal. but um, Or even had noticed that the rivers had changed with the removal of the wolf. So oh. it's it's a really interesting thing to see um, how those go. And it's, I think it's a, a really cool video. It's, it's not too long. Um, it's something I, I show in my honors bio classes every year. Great. All right. Well, uh, uh, Valerie, thank you so much for joining me, for taking in a little bit more than an hour here. This is now another hour of your summer that I took up. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for asking. And uh, so, yeah, I, I hope you are able to enjoy your uh, final couple of weeks of the summer um, and before we get back at it, because the schedule gets a lot tighter. Um, <laughs> we don't get as much free time. Well, I was thinking, it took me an entire day to get my son to a haircut today. How do I normally live life? I <laughs> Yeah, I've got I've got those errands coming up uh, in the in the next week or so too. So, all right, let me give my uh, my credits. Uh, music on this and every episode is done by uh, X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Uh, you can download this and every episode on Stitcher, SoundCloud, um, Apple Podcasts, anywhere that podcasts are found. Uh, you can get show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. Um, you can also follow me at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School um, to follow uh, what I'm doing and or the podcast is doing. And you can follow uh, Valerie at Valerie May underscore May, uh, which I'll also put in the show notes uh, if you want to follow her musings and life and all of the places she's doing PD or presenting PD (laughs) in the year to come. So thanks for joining me and I'll talk to everybody soon.